0: Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. In a moment,
1: we're going to dive into our new series and I was going to save this but throughout this week I've just constantly been asking myself this why question why does this series why does this practice matter and such a significant part of that has been I'll do kids in a second such a significant part of that has just been ringing in my mind throughout the week because Jesus is this good because Jesus is that good And so if it's your first time with us or you've been with us many times before, you just actually heard a testimony of the believers. You heard a a testimony of the experience of people who have been following Jesus. It is absolutely absurd, absolutely crazy to declare out kind of anthemically, powerfully in any circumstance, I will trust. to, To sing so loud this song of gratitude no matter what, meaning the good and the bad, and what it is is a testimony to the perfect faithfulness of our Jesus. And so as we dive into this topic of deconstruction, which I'll I'll talk about today, I just want to right out of the gate go, the reason we're going to talk about the things we're going to talk about today is because Jesus is too good not to. Jesus is too good to let any false stories or misconceptions or, or false values or ideas or distortions of who he is cause people to take a detour and miss out on his goodness. That's what we sing about, that's what we're going to talk about today, and my my hope and prayer is that he is glorified. And that... All right, if it's your uh, first time with us, my name is Landon, and I get to be one of the people that help lead Restoration Church, and uh, I get to, to have a lot of fun doing that. Today we're starting a new a new series and also a new practice for the next six weeks. So the same topic for the next six weeks, but also a practice And that for us at Restoration Church, we don't want to just know a bunch of stuff about Jesus. We don't want to just know statistics. We want to practice his way of life together. And so we do that in a pretty simple way. We call it practices. They're small groups of people that will gather in a home for six weeks We'll talk about the things we talk about on Sundays, Uh, then there's a a booklet that will go with it if you're in a practice group that will guide you to eventually what we call the actual practice, which is one tangible thing to go and do uh, that week. We want to just take Jesus seriously for what he calls us to. And so we're launching that today. It is on this topic of D and reconstruction, which maybe some of you know what that is. You are like, how in the world do we practice that? Maybe some of you don't have a clue what that is, and hopefully by the end of the day, uh, you will have an idea. My my hope this morning is is pretty specific. I want to define what D and Reconstruction is. I want to talk about why I think this matters, both biblically and practically speaking. And so that'll be kind of the, the goal to explain why. I want to tell you a little bit about my last week. So one week ago today was Sunday, and I was standing here, and then we finished our second gathering, and then we had our welcome lunch, and there was actually 50 people in this room after the second gathering for our welcome lunch. I talked about our our vision, introduced some things, uh, and then at the end of any welcome lunch, we always end it with a time of of Q&A, and so sometimes there's hardly any questions. Sometimes there's a lot. There was a lot this time, which is actually good. It's, it's fun. And one of the questions I frequently get is about how we view women in ministry in the church world. And I don't remember exactly how the the question was phrased, but basically it was asking, is there anything that women can't do that, that men can in our church? Do we theologically perceive it that way? And for us, there's one thing, which is the role of elders. That elders is an office, a position that is reserved for men. And so I answered that question, not a big deal. I get that question a lot. Didn't think much of it. I fast forward then to Wednesday, and it just so happened that we had our elders meeting that Wednesday, got together with Aaron and Ben. We had our meeting. I got home at about 8.30 p.m., which should be well past my kids' bedtime. But my oldest daughter, she is not a great listener when it comes to going to bed. She just loves to read. I've said this before, for like hours and hours, and we're like, no, we gotta cut it off. So I get home, I walk through the door. Everyone else is asleep. My oldest Aliyah just runs to me like I am her hero, like there could be nothing better than me getting back home, which I'm trying to soak that up because it's hit or miss. Like sometimes that's the case and sometimes I am the last person in the world that she wants to spend time with. And so I'm soaking that up. I get her to crawl in her bed and she goes, dad, what do you even do at an elders meeting? And I said, well, we talk about all kinds of things, problems. Things that we want to teach on, series we'll have. We prayed for our upcoming practice on d and We'll talk about finances and and what's healthy, what's not. all, All kinds of things, depending on what's going on in the church at that time. And she said, well, can I be an elder? Can girls be elders? And I said, actually, I did that. I paused. Her question hit me entirely differently than somebody else that I barely know and have never met, asking me that question on a Sunday morning in my job sphere world. When my daughter, who's nine, goes, That can I do that? And I had to look her in the eye and say, no, and explain why I felt that more uniquely than in the welcome lunch. And I explained to her why. We even talked about it a little bit more this morning, that God's made men and women differently. And there's beauty in those differences, that this actually has nothing to do with skill or ability or or talent. Rather, it's actually a different level of, of pressure, of responsibility, a unique set of responsibility that God says men are going to have to lead through. So we talked about it. Fast forward next day. I didn't have any of this planned next week, and I was on my phone, and I saw a video from some pastor wearing a suit in some church And he started talking, and I'm going to do my my best to imitate him a a tiny bit, but he he said something like this, very passionately. He said, it would be a good idea, about this loud, probably a little bit louder, it would be a good idea if your wife starts talking like, I like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like that, for you to look her in her God-given eyeballs and to tell her to shut her mouth. And then he continued to say, Just tell her, shut up. He continued after that. He said, That will help your house recover. In essence, he said, That will bring health to your home. And I'm like, He must not be married, or he's not going to be much longer. He continued to now speak to, to the men. He said, if you were the man you ought to be, you would be, or you would have been doing this all along because you are called to lead your house. And he said a bunch of other really degrading things. And I kind of feel it now, but as I watched that, I watched it like three or four times. And I'm being honest, I started to feel physically angry. Because there's a a man in a suit, which I actually think kind of matters in that moment. Because he took himself seriously and he was uh, attempting to portray his authority. He spoke as one who cared deeply about authority. And he was speaking, supposed to be teaching the scriptures to people who are supposed to interpret what he says and follow as if it is the word of God. Or that he's interpreting the word of God for them. He's teaching it. He's helping them to understand it. And then I made this bridge in my mind from this man, who I have some choice words I will refrain from, to my daughter's question at nine years old. Because here's the thing, my daughter's brilliant. Just a a few weeks ago, she put together this whole fair. I found out about it like two days before it happened. She had like 20 or 30 people invited to my mom's house. Somehow she talked my mom into this. She talked my mom into buying like a snow cone machine. She had people going to purchase popcorn at Harkins. She had like 12 adult volunteers running about eight different stations. She had prizes, raffles, dances. I'm not exaggerating on any of this. And she led the whole thing herself. Now she had some help, but like she led it. She's a great leader. She loves leading things. She's got vision and I'm proud of her for that. And I connected that to this sweet little nine-year-old's question, Dad, can I be an elder? And the answer is no. And I stand by that because I think the scriptures make it clear that God has an order. He has a design. We don't always understand every part of it, but he does have a design. And part of that is that men play a unique role in leading. It doesn't mean women can't lead, but it does mean that God has called men to lead in a specific way, and this is one of those ways. And I stand by two things this morning. One, I stand by the design that God has I stand by the scriptures. I stand by Jesus' goodness. And I think about the fact that there's men in that man in his suits, church, who will go home and will hear the words that he has taught about God and his design, and they will teach, they will lead, they will relate to their wives awfully, the opposite of how God wants them to because of poor teaching. And I think, God forbid, there's some 10-year-old surviving that church service, barely. And he's going to grow up, and this is the model he has of what it means to be a man. And one day, God forbid, he's going to meet a little girl who's grown up like my daughter, and she might get hoodwinked into this relationship, and then they're married, and then there's this terrible existence that should not be. That just can't be. I'm not okay with letting that happen, and we as a church should not be either. The way of Jesus is simply too good to let distortions, misguided teaching, arrogance, pride, sin, deception, infiltrate into God's perfection and create a deep harm, causing what we perhaps often refer to now culturally as deconstruction. We're calling this series D in Reconstruction for a reason. That man's teaching is trash, and it needs to be destructed. But then it needs to be reconstructed, rebuilt, remodeled with what is true and good and whole and right. For example, the the scriptures teach really clearly and simply about how husbands are to love their wives. It says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And as a side note, he didn't scream at her. He died for her. He loves strongly and sacrificially, not arrogantly and abusively. And that is hard work. That type of leadership requires a deep level of strength, which comes in the form of humility. And that's a challenge. That's what men are called to. That's the reconstruction after what that man said should be deconstructed. And so what we're looking to do in this series is to be honest about mistakes that have been made in the church to be honest about misguided practices and values for as long as God has me doing this here unfortunately I'm going to say things that are incorrect now we have a system we follow the scriptures there's elders they will question me people have questioned me they'll call me out that's great we need that because I'm a flawed person anyone that teaches same thing goes So we have to be able to step back and filter and question, what have we picked up along the way? What needs filtered out and replaced with what is good and true and whole? Other examples of this is if you look at our our nation's history and, and foundation, there were many men who edited Bibles to take out anything having to do with freedom because they didn't want their slaves to get any ideas. So they'd literally cut out anything having to do with freedom. That teaching, that value, that religious system and foundation that needs to be destroyed and then rebuilt with what is true and whole and good. The baby doesn't need thrown out with the bathwater. That doesn't mean in that moment that Jesus was not good or that his church was not beautiful and valuable. It was and is. But we have to be real about its flaws. Even today... Look at the the blending of our, our culture's views on the body and gender and sex that are so often so far from God's design that is good. And it causes immense harm, confusion. Yet many churches embrace and justify opposing ideologies and viewpoints being blown to and fro by culture's winds destroying what God has designated as good and rebuilding it with builders that do whatever we say because we want to be like God. There's big items that need to be deconstructed and reconstructed and then there's smaller things as well and we'll we'll get into a lot of that. Before we get any further, I just want to look at the life of Jesus. Dive into the scriptures in John 2. What we'll see is that Jesus deconstructed and reconstructed We're not not straying from his model. He's the blueprint. He is the guide. John 2, I want to read in verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Jesus walked up to the temple, which was the physical foundation of their entire religious system, of the the way that they followed God, but also the, the, the representation of the whole. He walked up, and he stopped before entering in, and we can picture him seeing and observing and assessing what is going on. And as he saw, what he saw was not good, What he found was religious leaders doing two things terribly. One, they made it nearly impossible for Gentiles, anyone that wasn't a Jew, to worship. They hindered them from worshiping God. Two, they corrupted and used the temple for their own selfish gain. In the next set of verses, what we'll see is that Jesus gets really angry we see a pattern in the scriptures that God gets angry from time to time, but there's a lot of confusion about God's anger. There's a couple things we need to understand. Number one, every single time that God gets angry, which he does, it is always good news for his people. It is always because he's fighting for them. It is always because he cares for them. It is always because he loves them. Two, it's not flippant. He doesn't randomly get angry. There's a a certain set of things that cause God to get angry. I want to look at his anger. Number one is this. God gets angry when his people are harmed. Number two, God gets angry when anyone hinders another person from finding him when that person wants to. If you obstruct the path of people worshiping and knowing God, God gets angry about that. Next, God gets angry when someone lies about him and paints an inaccurate picture of who he is. And then lastly, God also gets angry when people use and abuse his name for their selfish gain. The religious leaders... In this moment with Jesus had done a minimum of two of those things. Again, they'd hindered people from worshiping God when they wanted to. And they used God's name for their own selfish gain. Jesus walked into the temple. We read. He stopped. Maybe he took a deep breath. He observed and he saw. And what he saw was not good. And so he did something about it. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is a man of action. He wasn't content so let these misconceptions and issues and unhealthy things continue. He set on a course to change. Verse 15, we see this. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get those things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Jesus is not happy with the way things are set up in this moment, and so he does something about it. Specifically, he deconstructs, and then he rebuilds. Look at the next set of verses in verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name. When they saw the signs, he was doing Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus answered, I will destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. I will deconstruct what is unhealthy, what is wrong, what is not true and good and godly and then I will reconstruct with what is, with what my intent is, with what my vision is, with what my plans are, undistorted, uncompromised and corrupted by you. Jesus is the foundation, the most important, not the only, but the most important, to de and reconstruct. Notice also he was not talking about the actual building, though that would happen. He was talking about the religious system as a whole, about what it meant to follow God. At that time, Dean reconstruction was very important to Jesus, enough that he died and rose again. I can't think of a better example of Dean reconstruction than death and resurrection. That's the pathway of Jesus. So we've talked a little bit about the why. I want to kind of now define some terms. Let me read this quote to you What is deconstruction? Roughly speaking, deconstruction is the dismantling of anything that's been constructed. In architecture, it's a building demolished to make room for the new. In baking, it's the cookie torn apart for a pie crust creation. In child's play, it's an eight-year-old dismantling his Lego invention. Deconstruction describes many aspects of everyday life, but since the 1960s, it has meant so much more. Deconstruction is now more broadly applied to literature and philosophy, representing the dismantling of traditional cultural values, norms, and ideologies, most notably through the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. This led to what's been called postmodernism. Theological destruction as such is the process of dismantling one's accepted beliefs— Deconstruction is the new norm. Nearly 60% of people raised in Christian churches deconstruct their faith following high school. These numbers have faces. Faith deconstruction isn't a one-size-fits-all experience, nor does it always entail walking away from one's faith. A.J. Swoboda, after doubt. Side note, this is what that book looks like. It is a very good book. A ton of our practice is built on what is articulated in this book, so it is for sale in the lobby. If you want to dive in more, there's going to be a lot of parallels. You'll read a lot about it in our deconstruction book and hear me uh, quote Suoboda quite a bit. Overall, the the term deconstruction has a negative connotation, but for the, the sake of what we're doing the next six weeks, I'm going to define it for us neutrally, that it's something that can lead to good, or it's something that can lead to bad, to kind of be more dramatic, but I think accurate D and reconstruction is something that can be really extremely life-saving, or it can be extremely life-harming, taking. Swoboda writes on on this as well, about the good and the bad nature of of D and reconstruction. He says this, "'Deconstruction is a double-edged sword, It can edify our faith by helping us critically rethink wrong beliefs, but it can also go too far and bring our faith to nothing. Any belief we uncritically received at some point that remains hostile or opposed to the biblical message of Jesus Christ needs to be deconstructed. But the minute deconstruction undermines the gospel, our faith, or the Bible, we've deconstructed too much. There's a world of difference between deconstructing wrong beliefs and deconstructing the faith, just as there's a difference between remodeling a room in our home and tearing down the house. distinguishing between the two is essential. One is intellectual repentance and the other faith abandonment. One is healthy deconstruction, the other is faith destruction. In fact, the true and living faith will often require us to undertake some type of deconstruction of our beliefs. If you look at the, the scriptures, something you'll see fairly quickly is that both Satan and Jesus led and called people to their own deconstruction processes, to their own deconstruction journeys. We'll talk about that a lot more. We'll compare that to in week three. They're very different journeys, though. Satan in Genesis 3 called Adam and Eve to a deconstruction process, but destruction was the destination. (laughs) There was no returning and rebuilding what is healthy. It was meant to just end their relationship, distort their relationship with God. Whereas when we see Jesus speak here in John chapter 2, deconstruction is just the midpoint on the journey. The end result is a better, truer understanding of who God is. D and reconstruction is necessary because we still live in a sinful world. Our minds, our friends, our relationship, our bodies, our work is impacted by the corruption of sin. Since this disease, this cancer-like energy, it's not just a a list of rights and wrongs. It's It's a power, it's a force that we need freed from. And Jesus has won that victory, but until that's fulfilled completely, we're still impacted. Sin is around us, so from time to time we have to reflect and filter out what is wrong and let the Spirit lead us to reconstruct what is right and good. Why do this practice specifically? To follow the steps of Jesus by identifying the distortions in our beliefs, values, or practices that are keeping us from the good that Jesus created us for, died for, and rose from the grave for. When this happens, the spirit and scriptures can rebuild that for good. Let me be clear about that as well. This is not like, oh, let me think about what I don't like and I'm gonna replace it with what I do like. This is not a, let me think about what's no longer comfortable. When I read the scriptures and I go, I don't know about that, I'm gonna replace it with something that I do know about. That's not what this is. This is looking at our histories and going, where already have we seen misinterpretations of the scriptures? Where have we seen things taken out of context that over hundreds or even thousands of years, or maybe just 15 minutes, have started to lead us astray? Keep in mind, Satan used the scriptures constantly. He quoted them to people to influence them. So we're not straying from the scriptures. What we're actually seeking to do is have a really healthy hermeneutic interpretation of the scriptures to truly follow Jesus well. Sometimes I think, it's, I think it's funny when people go like, well, we're just, a, are you just a Bible-believing church? I'm like, yeah. What does that mean to you? I'm like, well, we just read it for what it is. That's great. But it's, there's, there's an interpretation process. It's not written in English. It's written thousands of years ago across cultures and contexts. And so it is true and whole and good and right. But there's things we often can miss if we don't diligently study what God is actually saying and speaking communicating to us. One of the keys, one of the reasons we do this, I mentioned it earlier, but is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead, rid ourselves of what is unhealthy and replace it with health. We find restoration in the person of Jesus. And we can help others do the same. I can guarantee every one of you knows somebody, if it's not yourself, that has been or is or will soon be going through a deconstruction process. Maybe it's you, son or daughter, father or mother, a sibling, co-worker, neighbor, boss, but what Satan wants them or you to do is hone on actual flaws in our belief system, in the church, and just focus solely on that thing enough that they reject everything that is good about the real Jesus, to take what what Satan has done and creating an image, crafting brilliantly something that's not true of Jesus for them to grab a hold of and for that to lead them away from the only one that can actually help, from the only one that is good and trustworthy always. I've been told, I don't know if this is true, but I've been told when I was a, a very young child, I believe still in diapers, I really hope, that I pooped in the hot tub at the Phoenician Resort down in Phoenix. It's one of my proudest moments I have no memory of, but they tell me it's true. They got everybody out of that hot tub, and then naturally, once everyone was a far distance away, they brought in a bunch of dynamite, and they blew up the entire resort and lit it on fire so that no one would ever return to the Phoenician Resort again because little Landon pooped through his diaper in the hot tub. The most logical thing to do is just blow it all up. That would be ridiculous, right? It would be equally ridiculous, though, to see something floating there in the hot tub and be like, hey, we see that. We might smell it. It's evident, but we're going to ignore it. Just come on in. The water's fine. That would be just as ridiculous. And what we think of, I think sometimes when we talk about deconstruction and reconstruction is that there's only two options. Blow it all up and leave the faith, leave Jesus. Or just go, nope, there's nothing wrong and we're blind. And so now we're swimming, soaking in some disgusting water. That's not what they did, right? They did quickly get everybody out of that water as they should. And they drained it, I assume. And then they sanitized it, I hope, multiple times over. Then they refilled it with fresh, clean, good water. And then the next day, people never knew, and they welcomed them back in. What happened in one area did not impact the hotel as a whole. The pool that was unattached, the landscaping, the restaurants, all of the rooms were just fine. But what Satan wants to do is point out one real issue or maybe multiple real issues that do need to be dealt with, that is key. Because the reality is, many of you have faced church hurt, trauma, poor teaching, unhealthy relationships, things said and done in the name of Jesus that are deeply painful. One pastor, John Tyson, said, there's nobody that has hurt me in my lifetime like the Church of Jesus. He's still a pastor, by the way. I can echo that. I will agree with that statement. And that's sad to say out loud. We have to change that. We have to be honest about the hard things that have happened because they're real and they're meaningful. And Jesus, the Spirit, does not want us to ignore them. But we can drain the water, sanitize it, make sure that whoever was causing issues gets potty trained before they're welcomed back in, and then start fresh. Just because the deck on the back of the house... Needs are placed, doesn't mean we burn the whole house down. Our hope in, in this series is to be honest about the fact that some people over time have left some gross things in the church. They've passed along flawed theology, beliefs, values, and some, some practices that are unhealthy as well. And I want to be clear, this is hard to say. It's like I've said this, one of my greatest fears in parenting is knowing that one day, My kids will have been harmed by some of the choices I made. I can't control that. I can pray God's grace and blessing. I will do the best I can, but I am flawed. In the same way, I will say things, like I mentioned earlier, that aren't true up here. Not intentionally, never deceptively, but I'm going to make mistakes. You have to be able to read the scriptures for yourself, to listen to the Spirit, to have a community of believers. This is why church and not isolation is key, so that we're following Jesus, not me or any other man. But we follow Jesus together. Last week I talked about trust and how trust is formed and we put up an image and I talked about trust is built upon the foundation of past results. I I still believe that is wholeheartedly true. I'm gonna add to that list though. We're gonna build on it just a little bit if we can pull up that image. Trust is built on past results but trust is also built on a number of things. Awareness of your own flaws, honesty about your own mistakes, and willingness to work. I do not trust a person ever who never says I'm sorry. I do not trust a person ever who does not admit to being wrong and making mistakes. What builds trust for me and a person is that they work hard. That they're honest when they make mistakes because they're going to. No one doesn't. And that the past results do speak for themselves. When an error is made, they adjust it. They have a track history of less errors and much more truth and correct. But if you're just pretending to be perfect, I definitely don't trust you. I think it's why the church so often is not trusted. It's the whole concept of putting on your church clothes, your Sunday best, showing up, we pretend we have it together, which is just ridiculous because, as we've said before, the whole reason any of us are here is because we're admitting we need Jesus and we're not enough ourselves. But often we come and pretend we have it together. That's not the gospel. Perhaps... The difference between your loved one or maybe you yourself blowing up the whole hotel instead of draining and cleaning and deeply sanitizing a part that needs corrected is us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, being honest about the mistakes we've made along the way. Being real about flaws we've had in our values or understanding Maybe the key to you or your loved one trusting in Jesus again is being honest about what you've misunderstood about Jesus or when you've taken him out of context. Think about it this way it's like if you got this reservation. For the best restaurant in the entire world with the most famous, renowned chef ever to exist. And you finally get to go to this restaurant and you don't even decide what to order because he just makes this one thing that is perfect. Everybody knows about it. You've been waiting for years to get to go. You show up, you sit down, you wait. Finally, the plate arrives and you dive in. What you don't know... Is that on the way, after the perfect chef made the perfect meal, uh, a waiter is bringing it to you. And somehow, uh, from the the path of the kitchen to you, spilt a whole bunch of salt on your meal. And so the plate is delivered. There's your meal. And you start to eat. And it tastes terrible. It is way too salty. And and for a little while, you'll keep eating. And you'll go like, well, this is supposedly the best. Everyone says, religiously, that this is really good. So I'm just going to keep trying it. But at some point, you're going to be like, you know what? This actually isn't good you're not gonna come back. You're actually not gonna want the food from that perfect chef. You'll actually think that that chef doesn't know how to cook or make anything good because this accident happened and all this salt these things that were not meant to be in the recipe delivered to you were given to you unknowingly. Or perhaps it was intentional. Perhaps the perfect chef made the perfect meal Hands it to the waiter, the waiter delivers it, but secretly on the way, the, the waiter's like, you know what? I think I have a better idea. So he mixes his own spices, adds a few things, takes a few things out, presents it to you without saying anything. So I have my own idea of what is good. And you eat it, you go, eh, this is really isn't that great. Or at first it started to taste good, but after you're like, man, the aftertaste, something's not right. But you're never told that it wasn't the chef. And so you think it's his fault. You think that he's not good. That's what happens to us. Because there's teachers, whether they're pastors, parents, authors, whether it's your own thinking, culture at large that passes things down, that takes God's good creation and slowly over time, like a game of telephone, distorts it. And the problem is if we don't do the work to filter out what is of God and what is not. And then we end up with a distorted image of who he is. Let me be very, very clear. Jesus has no flaws, but our understanding of him will have some flaws. Same goes for the scriptures. The scriptures are God's word, true and good and right, but we will have distorted interpretations of the scriptures. The good thing is that our honesty about our flaws maintains the purity of who God is so that he gets credit for the right things and doesn't get credit for the wrong things. You and I are not qualified to deconstruct the temple and rebuild it. But the Spirit is. That's what we're seeking to do. We can ask the Spirit to cleanse us from whatever is not good to give us eyes to see what we've picked up along the way that's not right, to rebuild whatever is good and true and whole and right, as Philippians says. I also want to be really clear about this. Deconstruction without submitting to the presence of the Spirit to lead is absurdly dangerous. But when we say, Spirit, lead me, and we dive into the Scriptures in community, there can be deep-needed health that comes about as a result. It's like David's prayer. It says, create in me, O God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Create a clean means get rid of the bad and renew means construct what is right and good. Deconstruction and reconstruction. That's my prayer for us throughout this practice. That we come humbly before the God of the universe that is able to guide our thinking our understanding that is able to help us process culture and scriptures and who he is and what he has declared as good. We say, create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. In the next five weeks, we're gonna talk about how humility is essential for this. We'll evaluate our histories. We'll talk about the the scriptures. We'll talk about how above all else, this is about the relationship with the presence of God. But the starting point is coming humbly before the Lord and saying, Create in me a clean heart and renew a, re- renew a right spirit within me. Let's pray that together. Holy Spirit, I ask, I seriously, significantly come before you humbly this morning and ask that you give the people in this room that are going to take this seriously, the people that have signed up for practices, your presence in new and profound ways that as we embark on on a journey that is scary, that you will walk every single step with us, that you will show us the things we need to see, good and bad, that you'd remove what should not be there, that you'd fill it with what is of you. Bless this time, bless this season, bless this practice as we submit to you for you to take out and to rebuild. We pray this all knowing that your love for us is beyond what we
0: can imagine. Jesus name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay. Let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.